Good morning. We are so happy that you are joining us as we open up holy and sacred space, space in which we interact with the living, breathing Word of God. And as we interact with His Word that is alive and springs up fountains of living water within us, can we pray today so that those fountains may water the parched souls and hearts, not only of us, but of those whom we encounter. Won't you pray with me? And so, Father, we come, we come to engage with your story, a story that is complex, a story that is held in tension, a story that asks us to focus on issues of law and then to understand and interpret that law through the lens of grace. And today, as we open the book of Deuteronomy, a book that is a perfect representation of that tension, we would just pray. We pray that you remain with us and that you move through us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Thomas Akempis, the great mystic and theologian, summarizes his path for spiritual formation and development with the following quote. Akempis writes, Choose evermore to have less, less than more. Seek less and desire the will of God to be done. Now, in a society, in a culture that is always trying to find how to get more, how to become bigger, how to expand, how to improve, how to profit more, Akempis's words sound counterintuitive. Choose evermore to have less. But the reality is that any understanding of ourselves as creatures forged in the image of God is going to necessitate that for your life, you desire the will of God to be done. The will of God is to choose less. And think about how life began in the garden. In the beginning, Adam and Eve had one command and one command alone. True freedom was given to them as they were allowed to, cho to choose from an infinite amount of good things. And the one restriction was, remember. Remember not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, sadly, they broke that rule, and as soon as they did that, more rules had to be put in place. The one became the 10, the 10 became 613. By the time Jesus came, careers were constructed out of not only making laws, but adding interpretations and interpretations to the interpretations of the law until all we had 
was copious amounts of texts that were attempting to allow us to understand how to live our life. And perhaps, well, perhaps that's what, that's why Jesus, that's why Jesus begins his earthly ministry by attempting to allow his followers to understand the necessity of choosing less. In him, the commentaries and concordances become 613, the 613 become 10, the 10 become 2, love God and love your neighbor, and the 2 become 1, love one another as I have loved you. It seems like throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus is attempting to restore and return us to that original Edenic state, a state where less truly is more. And that's why I find it interesting that today we discuss about this tension. Now, this tension that proliferates in Christian circles and this tension that is worried both theologians, pastors, and lay people. And I'm, of course, referring to the tension that exists between grace and law. A tension that would cause Luther to rail against certain books of the Bible. A tension that forced Martian, that great ancient theologian, to eliminate the books of the Old Testament. A tension that pushes us to try and find grace in the pages of chapters and stories that seem to depict a God, a God that is waiting to punish. Now, to be sure, the enforcement of laws for those who have been harmed, oppressed, and obliterated by injustice is good news. But could it be possible could it be possible that today, today Jesus is asking us to go back, to go back and search for less? Let me open my Bible with you, and let me open it to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look today at chapter 10. We're just going to read a couple verses and see what God has to say to us this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, At that time, the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stones of tablets like the first ones and come up to the mountain and also make a wooden ark. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you are to put them in the ark. And so at the very outset, there's this idea. This idea that the covenant, the law, that God has written with his own finger has been destroyed. And it's been destroyed as a result, if you know the story, of Moses' deep disappointment with Israel when he descends from Sinai and witnesses the idolatry into which they have fallen. The fact that they are worshiping creature instead of creator, the fact that they are trying to develop a localized notion of God, the fact that they say here Yahweh can sit on this throne that we have constructed for him in order for us to control him. Because let's face it, after all, we at all at some point have tried to control God. And what is God's response 
to both the mistake that the Israelites make and the mistake that Moses makes, well, it's grace. Only this time, as the second set of laws are being written, Moses is is asked to take a personal invest, to make a personal investment in the enterprise of creating laws. Notice that Moses is called to chisel out the rocks on which God is to write. Moses is called to construct the place that is to house those tablets. It reminds me of the ideas of sin and salvation that the great pastor and theologian Dallas Willard has in his book, A Renovation of the Heart. In it, Willard argues that that remorse is central to change, that regret is needed in order to restore the hearts, because it is only through remorse and regret that we can accept our current state. And what is the state that we must accept? Well, it is the state that the Israelites refuse to accept as they wait for Moses to come back down from Sinai with that first set of tablets. Notice that they construct this golden calf. And some scholars will tell you that the calf itself isn't a god. Rather, the calf is the place on which Yahweh is supposed to ride. They are creating or at least attempting to create a throne for Yahweh in order to assure themselves that they have not been abandoned. Theology, after all, so often attempts to be a response to our abandonment issues. They're trying to be God. Willard would then argue and retort that the acceptance and the awareness that must come through remorse and regret is that we are not God, we are creatures. Now notice that once that happens, Moses is invited to take an active role in the creation of a law that is grounded in grace. He is to chisel out the tablets and to construct a home. An ark, an ark for the spirit of God, that paradoxical spirit that is both grace-filled and law-giving. That's where where it will dwell. There's been a debate raging, at least for as long as I've been involved in church work. Are we saved by law or are we saved by grace? I'm not sure we say we're saved by grace and grace alone. But it seems to me that at least in our current interpretations of what that means, we say grace and grace alone mean adherence to the Sabbath, devotion to the spirit of prophecy, understanding to the messages and the secret codes of Daniel and Revelation. We are saved by grace and grace alone. And then there's an appendix to that. Maybe instead of engaging in these discussions, the invitation that we are asked to participate in today is the recognition and the awareness that we are not God. And so the places, the theological golden calves that we construct in order to try and 
silo God in order to try and restrain God to our particular tribe, the God of Adventism, are nothing more than acts of idolatry. And the messages that have been selected for us by the spirit of prophecy through God's prophet Ellen White, the truth of the Sabbath, the ideas of annihilationism, the notion of a sanctuary. Can it be possible that all these ideas have become idols on which we try to place the God that created all things? And so God today invites us to allow him to be God. In order to allow him to be God, though, we must experience grace. And it's the same grace that Moses experienced, wasn't it? Actively participate in the creation of a new covenant, a new law. So he chisels out the tablets and he, and he crafts like a master carpenter the ark so that God may dwell in it. Hmm. And I think it is as the Israelites carry that ark, throughout dusty deserts, as the Israelites now have to move that ark from place to place as they have been exiled, as they carry that ark and that ark is stolen on the battlefield by the Philistines, as that ark resides in a tent overlooking Jerusalem, as that ark knocks down those who touch it, as David is trying to move it from Jerusalem into the temple, as that ark is left and forgotten, as that ark continues to be the ultimate symbol of mystery and paradox, maybe and just maybe, God is trying to use that as a symbol for our condition. You see, too often... Too often we fail to we fail to recognize that brokenness brokenness is not in our wounds. You know, we look at the mistakes we make and we try and diagnose them. We try to say, "Oh, these issues in my life," and we lay them out clear as can be. We say, "Those are results of our brokenness." But perhaps our brokenness isn't the result of our wounds, but rather the result of something that dwells deep in our hearts. And maybe the ark is a symbol of God's desire to replace that darkness that deep that dwells deep in our hearts with His presence, and that's grace. Again, Willard. Willard, talking about the importance of the law vis-a-vis -vis sin, says that the actions that we commit, the ways in which this darkness that we all possess and this brokenness that we have is expressed into the world is a mere reaction to the condition of our inner life. In other words, Willard says that the sins we commit, well, the sins we commit and the laws that are intended to regulate and tell us about these sins are merely diagnostic tools that can be used in order to understand the deep desire that we have for that ark, the presence of God that dwells in our life.
Again, Willard in his book, Restoration of the Heart, writes this haunting statement. Listen to his words. Human beings possess radical goodness in their souls. For each and every one of us is capable of restoration. And that is the magnificence of grace for the renewing of the mind and the death to self are the purest expressions of a heart that has accepted the indwelling of the spirit. So maybe, maybe the law is a tool that God uses. A tool that God uses to remind us how shattered our lives have become, much like those commandments that were shattered. At the bottom of Sinai. And maybe, maybe grace is the ark. That thing that carries the commandments, that thing that houses the commandments, that thing that provides wall and structure to the covenant. Maybe grace is the presence of God. And maybe the response to the brokenness that we have and the shattered dreams and aspirations that we must come to terms with is the invitation of God to allow him to dwell in us. Perhaps that's why Jesus, in the midst of his farewell speeches, tells his disciples, abide in me and I will abide in you. Live in me, breathe in me, feel in me. Recognize but our brethren in the Quaker tradition have defined the inner light, the presence of God, the imprints of Jesus in your heart. And allow those to speak out. Allow the presence of the ark, the one that houses the covenant, to dwell. And if you do, maybe the tension won't be between the law and grace anymore. Maybe the idea won't be how are we saved or what saves us, maybe and just maybe. The next question you ask is how do I live covenant in the life of someone else? Make no mistake about it. We are not here to resolve the tension. We are here to plead with you this morning Stop looking for more. Search for less. And allow the desires of God for your life to become your desires. Joey, law and grace. Mm. Wow, law and grace. I love how you began this, this study with this idea of um, that more is less. I mean, less is more, I guess. Less is more. And the quote from Thomas... Um, a campus. It's just so powerful. It actually brought to mind um, just more from the secular world, the idea of um, Kanmari that mm -hmm. uh, Marie Kondo mm -hmm. brought into um, English vocabulary from the Japanese language, this idea of simplifying our mm -hmm. lives as a way of sparking joy, that actually by doing less or having less, by decluttering our lives, it actually can bring out more joy and that we suffocate our joy by having too much. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah, beautiful. you know, and so you, you're talking about it in this move. I think that a lot of people in East in Eastern cultures are, are making towards minimal uh, minimalism. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's happening in the sciences as well, right? Mm. A theory now is considered beautiful mm. when it is elegant in its simplicity. Mm -hmm. So it's not the complex uh, theories as to science or physics or, or the world. It's, it's the simple and elegantly simplified theories. And so it seems like throughout all these arenas of life, we start understanding that less is more, except when it comes to theology. Somehow, uh, when we're talking about our faith experiences and our faith life, we haven't really come to terms with mm -hmm. this idea of less is more. We, we keep adding to it and keep adding to it and keep adding to it. Um, we had 27 fundamental beliefs until we had 28 and maybe the next general conference uh, we'll have 30 and and so on and so forth and and so more and more and more and i'm not against adding stuff i'm against thinking that ever more complicated versions of spirituality bring us in any way closer to god i think I think grace is about simplifying life. So do you feel like we've overcomplicated theology? We've overcomplicated our relationship and interaction with God? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think I think salvation, theology itself, is simple. It's not simplistic. Mm. Um, it pains me to say this because here we are studying a long time um we've i've been engaged in higher education as it pertains to theology for what's like 12 years mm. so it's it's a while and we still have a while to go yeah but salvation is simple mm. what does jesus say believe in me mm. if you have seen me you have seen the father yeah um I go to prepare a house, a home for you. See, Jesus doesn't make these complicated, complex pronouncements because the grammar of grace cannot be complicated. Mm. And that's why the grammar of grace is a language best understood by children. Mm. I know, well, my nine-year-old has a really complicated vocabulary, but my four-year-old doesn't. Mm. And he's about the best theologian I know. No, he says, Jesus loves me, this I know. Hmm. So, yeah, I think we, we have oversimplified. I, I think we have made something that ought not to be complicated, complicated. And then hmm. we've also managed to make it simplistic. Hmm. Uh, in the sense that only insert whatever group you like, only... Hmm this group is going to go to heaven. So we've made it really complicated in the sense that you have to follow all these rules. But we've also made it really simplistic in the sense that we're, we got, we've gotten really good at deciding who goes in and we forget that grace is always, uh, it's simple and it's ever expanding. Wow. Who was it that, what scholar was it that when he was asked um, after all his years of study, what is the most profound truth that you found in scripture? He replied, Jesus loves mm. me, this I know, for the Bible mm. tells me so. Mm. 
I mean, that really is at the heart of, of Christianity. That's the heart of God's message. Like you talked about, God, God, Jesus simplifies, really takes all of the traditions of, of, of the rabbis, or actually before rabbis, of the Jewish um, Jewish teachers, and, and then shrinks it down to these two principles of love God and love mm -hmm. man. And really at the heart of that is the idea of love, right? He just distills it all, all down to that. Um, and in many ways, by, like you said, complicating things, we've sort of painted God into a corner, right? We've created all of these laws or these concepts about who God is so that we say God can only be this. Um, like in Adventism, we say oh, God can only be the Adventist perspective mm -hmm. of God. And he can't he can't be outside of the box that we've created for him. So in many ways, like you said, we've by complicated complicating things, we've we've oversimplified mm -hmm. God. Yeah. Right. No, that's a really good way of putting it. It's a way that bears out in the text and the story that we read. I mean, Deuteronomy 10 is a result of what happens at Sinai, right? And what mm. is what, what what is it that they do if not overcomplicating while at the same time making God simplistic? So, you know, God says, hey, I'm with you wherever you go. And that's, that's I guess, too simple for them. And mm. so they decide to create a golden calf because God, God needs to ride something. God needs to sit somewhere. God needs to be present and palpable. Um and then, and then they limit God mm. in the same breath. Yeah. Um, I think I think what you're saying about scholarship is is so true. So two of the biggest, uh, I think, in the most copious uh, writings on systematic theology that that come to mind are both uh, one from the Catholic tradition, uh, Thomas Aquinas's Summa, which is huge, and then. Um, Karl Barth's dogmatics, which mm. is uh, from a, Prot a Protestant attempt at systematic theology, and they're both enormous volumes. Um, it pains me to say I haven't read all of them. Um, it's just too, it's too much. <laughs> but um, they asked Barth to um, summarize dogmatics, mm. and he says, Jesus is. Mm. That's his summary. Wow. And um, he, he's playing on Aquinas's summary of the Summa, which uh, when they uh, which Aquinas simply says God is, mm. and so it's it's this realization, right, that uh, after all the conversation is had mm. and all the debates between law and grace and how are we saved and who gets saved and what what faith tradition is correct. The two things that remain is God is, and to paraphrase Bart, God is more than but none other than Jesus Christ. And that's pretty simple. I mean, my four-year-old gets it. I don't know why we don't get it sometimes. Yeah. I mean, God himself tells Moses, I am, right? Who are you? And Moses ex expects this whole clear definition that paints God into a corner, <laughs> and God just simply says, I am. I am. I am. Wow. And just like the Israelites, I, I love how you connected this idea with idolatry because that was sort of mind-blowing for me that, you know, we normally think of idolatry as like trying to depict God as objects mm -hmm. or 
um, trying to um, or or loving objects more than we love God, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's idolatry. But you 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 seem to be saying that actually taking God and trying to define Him in a way that fits what we're comfortable with that in itself is idolatry. So it's not so much about objects; it's about objectifying God, mm-hmm. right? That when we try to make God take a God that we sort of, we really can't fully comprehend and try to make him something that we can comprehend, we are committing idolatry, which is what the Israelites were mm-hmm. doing when they made the golden calves. They weren't creating a separate God. They were trying to create a God that, trying to create Yahweh into something that they could control, mm-hmm. that they could call at will, that mm-hmm. they could move around with them. And God says no. God yeah. says no. Yeah, no, that, by the way, I want you all to, to listen to what Joey just said, because it's it's worth repeating. Idolatry is not about objects. It's about objectifying God. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And that's what we do. I mean, if you would have asked, if you would have asked Aaron and, and the rest of the Israelites that are in camp waiting for Moses to return, is this calf Yahweh? They would have said, no, the calf isn't Yahweh. Yeah. What, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, so uh, this idea that the actual idol is God, nobody believes that. Yeah. Everybody, everybody would agree that what the idols are are simple manifestations of this thing that is hidden, this mm. thing that is wholly other. The thing that makes Israel's God different than all the other gods isn't that they that the Canaanites and the Semitic tribes and you know, the Babylonians and the Egyptians actually believe that these statues were God. I mean, please, let's let's be real. Mm. The thing that made them different was that Israel was called to lean into the discomfort mm. of not having a, pay, a palpable God that you could control at will. Yeah. They, they were being asked, lean into that discomfort yeah. because the hardest thing that human beings are going to be called to inhabit is this realization that you're not God. You can't control him or her. You can't move him. You can't encapsulate him. It's You cannot be comfortable with God. Again, Willard mm. talks about this in, in this great book, Renovation of the Heart. God is like lightning. It's necessary, it's necessary to create electricity. It's a great thing, but it's also dangerous. Mm. And so you, sh- you can never be comfortable with God. That's what Israel is being called mm. to lean into. And I think that's idolatry. Idolatry is our, our deep desire to become God. And so when we, when we try to control God, we end up casting God in our own image because mm. we're not comfortable with a God that is outside of us or that is wholly other yeah wow and you know what's ironic is that god actually later on gives them sort of what they did because he builds a sanctuary where his presence is with them he gives them the ark that is his seat Mm -hmm. you know is his mercy seat and yet it's all on his terms Mm -hmm. and not on their terms it's not a way for them to manipulate him and whenever they try to use it to manipulate him when they whenever they take the ark and they try to say you know we're going to take this in the battle to force god to fight on our side he says no uh, i'm that, not there that's yeah. that's not the way i work yeah. right and and they just don't seem to get that and yet i mean we can we can we can kind of chuckle at at their ignorance but don't we do the same i think that's the point that you're saying is that we often do the same we try to 
there is something within us that says that we we need to control God. Mm-hmm. We need to make him understandable. We need to make him um, controllable, manipulatable. Um, this idea that this world around us, this is our way of exhibiting control over mm-hmm. nature and over God. Yeah, I mean, Joey, you said it. You said it masterfully. Um, so God, God takes them and says, "All right, you want you want a palpable representation of me? Here's the ark." Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the ark, and they move in with the ark, and as they're crossing into Canaan, right, uh, a few few years after this, uh, as they're crossing into Canaan, the ark goes first, and the water parts, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a majestic moment in which the presence of God is exhibited, and so they think, oh, well, the power's in the ark, the power's in this thing that we can take, and so they go into battle, the Philistines, and they lose the ark. And it's like, well, I guess I guess not. And then so the Philistines now think, ah, oh, now we're going to have this God of Israel and we're going to sap their power. And the five cities of Philistia is begin to encounter all kinds of tragedy. And so you know what they do? They start moving the ark around like, and wherever the ark goes, trouble follows. And so the Philistines say, well, we don't want this. We're going to send it back. And it's this foolish attempt at at realizing Mm. that the symbol doesn't equate to the symbol maker Mm. and i think god provides symbols because god wants to assuage and allay some of the fears that we have Mm. but when when it comes to creating symbols and ways of understanding god we need to be very careful that what we're doing is collaboration and not co-opting. Mm. So Moses is being asked to collaborate with God. You hew the ark, um, I will live in the ark. Mm-hmm. But whenever we try to co-opt, uh, God says, no, 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 um, I'm going to leave. And so if, if you remember, for example, those heart-wrenching visions that Ezekiel will, will have uh, centuries later, God is leaving uh, his dwelling place in the Holy of Holies and in the ark because he says, you cannot, I will not be co-opted. I'm a God of collaboration, but you cannot co-opt me. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think what all of us as, as people of faith would do well uh, to do is to find ways and ask the question, how can we collaborate with this God today rather than how can we co-opt this God to continue continue furthering an agenda that we have. Mm, I love that. How can we collaborate with God rather than trying to co-opt him? Because that's basically what we do, right? When we try to control God, when we try to define God, when we try to make God, remake God in our own image, we are co-opting God. We're taking his name and saying, God, you have to do what we mm. like, what we want. So how is that different? What what does it look like to to cooperate with God rather than co-opting him? How cuz part of the desire is good. The desire to know God is good, right? God wants us to know mm-hmm. him and to understand him. Although as humans, we have to also lean into that paradox that we've talked about of also no, realizing that God is never going to be completely knowable. Mm-hmm. He's never going to be completely understandable, but that there are parts of him that we can know and ca- that we can understand. So w- w- what do we do to try to cooperate with God rather than co-opting God and taking him over? Mm. That's a great question. 
And I think the question that, and the answer to that question, I think, rests on a clear understanding of the law and the and grace mm. and the role that both of them play. So the law is intended, if, if you look throughout scripture, the law is always intended kind of as your diagnostic tool um, when you're driving your car, the pop, the uh, engine uh, light pops on and mm. you say something's wrong with this car. Um, but unless you're a mechanic, you don't know what's wrong. You just know that you need to do something or there's some things that you need to change. That's kind of what the law does. That's mm -hmm. kind of because the law is God's response to sin. Yeah. And sin is nothing else but the inner brokenness of the human being manifesting itself outwardly. That's what sin ultimately mm -hmm. is. And so both sin and God's response to sin are diagnostic tools. We co-opt God when we when we think that the diagnostic tool becomes the restoration tool, mm. right? So when we think that the law itself is the thing that is going to repair mm -hmm. the engine, um, that's, I think, when we start co-opting God. Collaboration requires mm. grace. Mm. And so... I recognize that something's wrong, and I recognize that the only way to repair that which is wrong is I am being called to collaborate in a relationship with, with this God mm. who already is dwelling in me. Yeah. I just need to realize that that's happening, so, yeah. let's, so I'm going to collaborate. And in order to do that, I must recognize, as Eberhard Jungel says, that God is the God who loves in freedom. Mm. And so... How do so that's that's grace. It's the capacity of loving someone mm -hmm. and allowing them to maintain their personhood, mm -hmm. to not try to force the other person to align with you. And so when we when we when we try to use what is supposed to be a diagnostic tool in order to restore or repair something, mm -hmm. what we end up doing is we co-opt people, we remove freedom because we say you have to operate within within these margins. And that's when grace goes out the window. Mm -hmm. So law is the first step, I think. It's always going to be the first step. Uh, but grace is how you're restored. Grace is how you're repaired. Grace mm -hmm. is how you collaborate. Grace is how you fix the problem of, of brokenness. Mm -hmm. That's why I, th I, think, I think Luther got it right by grace and grace alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, not because the law is bad, but because, at, at least at Luther's time, for 1,500 years, the church had been using the law to do something it wasn't intended to do. Mm. Wow. Because we, we, we tend to think that if we just understood the law enough, if we understood the law better, then we could fix ourselves, mm -hmm. we could fix the people around mm -hmm. us. And what the message of scripture seems to be saying is, no, that's not how you're fixed. It's just there to help you understand how broken you are. Mm -hmm. You've got to go to God, who's the only one who can fix mm -hmm. you. Just like he's, like uh, Moses writes in Deuteronomy 9, don't let you conquering um, these people and getting this land deceive you in thinking that you were able to do this <laughs> because you were righteous, right? Yeah. You did this because God gave this to you. Yeah. And that's the only reason it's so we can save for ourselves. Oh man, don't you love that the lesson quoted Deuteronomy 9, particularly the way that passage ends? Mm -hmm. You are stiff-necked. It's, like, <laughs> it's like Moses is telling him, look, look we're going to give you the land, 
We're only giving it to you because these people that are inhabiting the land are worse than you. And just don't think it's because of your righteousness the pericope closes because you are stiff-necked people. Mm -hmm. And I think I love Moses for doing that and for having the courage to speak truth to speak truth into 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 people's lives. I think that I think grace allows you to do that as well, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It allows you to speak truthfully in into someone's life. Where whereas the law I think allows you to speak judgmentally into someone's life look at all the things that are wrong with you mm -hmm. grace allows you to speak truth and freedom it, it allows you to say hey don't think it's because you're that great you're still stiff-necked yeah. uh, but god is doing something in and through you wow yeah because then then it doesn't just end with condemnation there is reconciliation and restoration that's available mm -hmm. it, moses isn't just saying you're stiff-necked and you're always going to be stiff-necked and we're going right. to give up on you <laughs> he says no you're stiff-necked but despite that you have a god that is able to do to to restore you to create this nation for you that mm -hmm. he took 70 people that went to egypt and fell into slavery and and grew you to be to be greater than the the number of stars in the sky right he's saying this is the type of god that you serve and so remember that remember that it comes like you said through grace mm. and not through the mm. law and what a what a great what a great way joey that deuteronomy has of kind of grounding the idea of grace, if you will, in history. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned it in Deuteronomy kind of, I've lost track about how many times either the 70 that go into Egypt come into the, into the mind of the writer or um, the fact that they're sons and daughters of Abraham. Uh, these two things constantly come into into the frame and i think the reason why they come into the frame is because god wants us to understand that grace is not this ethereal concept which a lot of times we do this right we say how oh, grace and we are always trying to add addendums to this idea of grace because we need something palpable and so we say grace plus something else and then god throughout deuteronomy is saying wait 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 understand that grace itself mm. is grounded in history. Mm. And because it is grounded in history, um, you can continue going back to that historical well mm. to get some inspiration mm. and some strength from when, for when the situation is less, less than ideal. Yeah, so grace didn't have to wait for Jesus to come to come into history. Mm. Grace has been in history. Mm -hmm. That that has been God's modus operandi, right? Mm -hmm. That's the way that God has worked ever since the beginning. Even, even at the first fall of man, God off offers grace to Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. He offers grace to Cain. He offers grace over and over again throughout the history of, of God's people and the history of this world. So we can look back at those stories of grace and, and understand better what God is God is doing. And perhaps if we are also called to be people of grace, perhaps what we need to also do is to offer that grace not to each other. And then like you were talking about, which I never even thought about, but that we could offer grace to God. Not that God needs our grace, but in that 
Um, I love how you said love doesn't control people. Love doesn't try to make people do what we want them to do. Love allows people to be themselves. And could we offer God that kind of love? Mm. The love, love God in a way that we don't have to define him, but allow God to be God. Mm. And maybe that's another way that we can partner with him mm -hmm. to cooperate with him with rather than co-opting him mm. is to allow God to take the lead. I remember, um, I think we've talked about this before, this, uh, this documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. Um, it's about a farm that's up in like the Simi Valley area. And they tried to do something. These people that actually were not farmers to begin with decided to do something just really revolutionary when it comes to farming. Because most mega farms that are out there now are like single crop farms, right? right? They, they, just, they just create an area and they, all they grow is wheat or all they grow are potatoes. Or, and, and they do this because they feel like they can mass produce these things. But by doing that, what they've done is created, a, they, they don't work with the environment around them. They actually have to fight the environment to grow the crops. So you're ever having to do more pesticides and um, more genetically um, altered um, organisms in order to grow these things. And so you're going to have to do that over and over because you're, you're constantly trying to control nature mm -hmm. instead of working with nature. And in The Biggest Little Farm, they, they ask the question, what would it look like to have a farm that didn't try to control nature, but worked with mm. nature and allowed an ecosystem to develop where things are growing and there's lots of different crops that mm. are growing, but they're all working together in a unified ecosystem. Mm. Could that be something sustainable? Mm. And it is quite a journey. I, I, I mean, I, if, you, if you ever get a chance to, to watch it, you can find it online, The Biggest Little Farm. But it's, it's fascinating. It's hard work, especially at the beginning. But they finally get to a place where they, the ecosystem actually sustains the growth that they're looking for. Mm. They create an ecosystem um, that actually helps fight pesticides and I mean, help fight, fight pests. And actually, the things that they often saw as pests become helpful to their <laughs> ecosystem. And how they do it, the, real, the principle that they use to, to, to do this is listening. They listen and observe nature. So when some, a problem crops up, instead of immediately stepping in and trying to fix the problem, trying to nuke the problem, they ask themselves, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Why is this happening within this ecosystem? And how can this actually help the ecosystem that mm. we are a part of? Like, they, they, they see these snails. All of a sudden, their fruit trees start getting infected with these snails. And, the, you know, the first instinct is just to throw snake, a snail killer on, on everything, right? And, 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 but they say, no, we're, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to fight the ecosystem. We're going to work with the ecosystem. So they observe. And they realize that the snails actually, they actually function in a role. What they function is that their food for the other animals that are on, uh, on the property. And what, what they really need to do is to give those animals free reign into the trees. And when they allow these ducks that they have to go into the trees, snail problem goes mm. away. Not because they nuke the snails, but they allowed the, the animals mm. access to a part that they were actually restraining them from. Wow. Right. Wow. And I wonder, you know, th th this is not from a theistic 
point, a point of view, this, this documentary. But I wonder, if we can do that with nature, why can't we do that with God? Mm. Why can't we listen to God and allow, and maybe co- cooperating with God means that we take more time to listen and try to figure out, what is God already doing here? Mm. Why, instead of just butting up against the problem and saying, oh, we have to immediately mm-hmm. fix this problem or nuke this problem, ask the question, is God using this problem? Is God using this situation to do something greater? And how can I partner with him in the work that God is already doing? Oh, and that's that's grace. I love I love that idea. Um, I, I think the problem is that we're short-sighted. Hmm. Um, you know, Israel has in their mind the land of Canaan. Hmm. God has in his mind the restoration of the whole universe. Israel has in mind... The 12 tribes, God has in his mind every single human being that has inhabited history. Mm. And so a lot of times our short-sightedness allows us to be anxious about resolving problems mm. uh, instead of waiting for God to to act and to do what he's already doing. Um, yeah. As you were talking, I just I thought about the brutal reality of a hunger in, in Africa. Um, there was never famine or hunger in Africa until Africa was colonized. Mm. And the reason for famine and hunger in Africa post-colonization was because whether it was uh, the English or, the, or the, Brit, uh, the French or the Portuguese or the Dutch whoever, or the Belgians, whoever came into Africa asked not the question, why are, are the natives planting in cycles? Um, but they asked, What's the most profitable crop that we can grow? Uh, and then they forced mm. people to plant that particular crop, whether yeah. it was wheat or cotton or rice or what, whatever whatever crop at the time was was more profitable. And so what that did is they threw the it threw the ecosystem into an imbalance and it produced famine and pain and starvation and all the things that that we know have happened over the past uh, two hundred plus years. Um, and that that came out of out of their short-sightedness. Mm. And so I think I think God is constantly asking us for trust uh, that he has not just today in mind, but that he has tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and all of eternity. And maybe if we get good at the art of patiently waiting on the Lord, um, we'll, we'll get good or we'll get better. I should say, at, at the art of understanding the grammar of grace. Wow. Yes. So the, I guess the takeaway for us is to spend a little bit more time waiting and listening to God so that he can teach us the grammar of grace mm. rather than trying to write the dissertation on God ourselves. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to close, friends. Joey's going to pray, and then we're going to see you next week. Um, hope that throughout this week, you take some time to patiently wait for God. Joey. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being one that doesn't always just immediately override human impulse. Even despite the fact that we are so flawed that sometimes we wish you would. But you actually have such patience with us. 
You give us time to learn and to grow and to be who we are and to grow into what you know we can be. And so we ask that you help us to have the patience to allow you to do the same, to not feel like we all immediately have to fix problems and step into situations, but instead to take a moment to see, to listen, to observe what you're already doing in the spaces that we inhabit. Give us patience is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.